The passage for this morning's sermon is Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 19. Again, Matthew 11, 7 to 19. This is the Word of God. Listen carefully to it. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man in soft, soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let us pray. Our gracious God, wisdom is indeed justified by her deeds. And so I ask, dear Lord, that you would give us great wisdom this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we consider your word, that you would, by your spirit, enlighten our minds. We pray, Lord, that as we look at these words, as we delve into them, that you would use your word to conform us to the image and the likeness of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would purify us, that you would sanctify us, and that you would use your word as as a means of grace uh, to do these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to give a little bit of background here to remind you of uh, what we covered last week, the previous passage uh, that we looked at last week, uh, Jesus confronted the doubts of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has sent his disciples to Jesus. John, who was in prison uh, because of things that he had said, because of his his, uh, uh, willingness to confront Herod with his sin, John had been cast into prison. And so his his disciples came to Jesus to ask of Jesus a question. They came to ask Jesus if he was the one uh, who uh, John should expect, or if John should expect another. And in this, John expressed... Uh, some doubts that he was experiencing. And we looked a little at those doubts last week, and you, and you remember this, that instead of rebu- rebuking John, what did Jesus say? Jesus uh, comforted John in a sense. Jesus corrected him in a sense. But it wasn't a harsh rebuke. Jesus described to John what he had been doing during his public ministry. He had been giving sight to the blind. He had been making the crippled 
crippled to walk. He'd been cleansing lepers and causing the deaf to hear. He'd raised the dead back to life, and he'd been preaching the good news to the poor. He did not blast John for asking these questions that arose from his doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah. He spoke gently to him. He pushed him in the right direction and reminded him of those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And in today's passage, Jesus turns from addressing the disciples of John to all of those crowds of people who were gathered around Jesus wherever he went. These people who had just witnessed this exchange between Jesus and John's disciples. Now, if John the Baptist had doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah, you can count on the fact that there were many people among those in the crowds who had the same kind of doubts. And so Jesus' words to John the Baptist stand. The proof that Jesus offered to John was proof enough for these people. He pointed to their very scriptures, their very own scriptures, and said, I am doing these things which have been prophesied of the Messiah. Jesus establishes in this passage this morning, after he's talked about the doubts that John has had and the proof that he offers for those doubts, Jesus establishes now that John was the prophet sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. Those who have ears to hear will know that John came to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And so I'd ask you to think on this as we work our way through this text this morning. Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the prophet John because believers now live in the full light of the gospel. Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the prophet John because believers now live in the light, the full light of the gospel. We've divided this passage into three sections, verses 7 to 10, which I've titled A Prophet. Verses 11 to 15, which I've titled The Least is Greater Than a Prophet. And then finally, verses 16 to 19, A Friend of the Least. Verses 7 to 10, A Prophet. Verses 11 to 15, The Least is Greater Than a Prophet. And then verses 16 to 19, A Friend of the Least. Let's look now at verses 7 to 10, A Prophet. Verse 7 says that as the disciples of John went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, was Jesus trying to prevent the people from misunderstanding his words to John? Was he trying to, to, to head them off at the pass? If there's any question in the people's minds about Christ's regard for John the Baptist, he dispels them with his words in this section. The remainder of verse 7 and verses 8 and 9 say this, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear a soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. Now, Matthew attests back in chapter 3, verse 5, that the great crowds of people, great crowds of people, were streaming to John the Baptist at the river Jordan. They were coming out to him in this area just north of the Dead Sea. In droves. He says there in chapter 3, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. They were going out to, to be baptized. And in verses 7 to 9 of our passage this morning, Jesus reminds the crowds, he reminds these people of why they did this. 
There must have been uh, many, many people in attendance that day who had gone down to the river to be baptized by John the Baptist, to hear his message of repentance. They came out. They did this because John was a prophet. He was the first prophet to appear in Israel in centuries. You see, there had been a silence of the Word of God. The light of God's revelation had gone dark. And so when John appeared on the scene, when he appeared on the scene uh, during the height of the Roman occupation, the Jews in Israel were rightly excited. They were jubilant. The word of the Lord had returned. A prophet was again in Israel. The biblical scholar F.F. Bruce has said about this that the multitudes which flocked to the Jordan Valley to hear him from all parts of Palestine did so because men recognized in his preaching, in John's preaching, a note of authority the like of which had not been heard in Israel for centuries. All held that John was a real prophet, as it says in Mark 11.32. John was a prophet. But Jesus goes even further. Jesus says that John is more than a prophet. In fact, Jesus says, John is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. This is the one. John not only is a prophet, he's been prophesied about. Now, the most recent prophet prior to John was Malachi. And he prophesied uh, some 500 years before John the Baptist arrived on the scene. And it was Malachi. It was this last of the prophets before John, born up by the Spirit of God, who wrote the words that Jesus quoted here. John's most recent predecessor spoke concerning him and the special privileged position that he would have in the history of God's people. John the Baptist, as Malachi says, is God's messenger whom he sends before the face of the Messiah. That is, God sends out his messenger immediately before, immediately prior to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. John is the herald of the king. He's the one who precedes the king as he makes his way along the road. John is the one of whom it is said he will make the path straight for the coming of the Lord. He's the herald. He cries out, make way for the king. John is this voice in Isaiah 3 that says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is a prophecy that Isaiah made over 700 years before John the Baptist was born. Among the prophets in the Old Testament, John held the esteemed position of being the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who was enabled, who who was privileged to lay down the highway upon which the Messiah would tread. He was the only prophet to see the Messiah. The only one to speak these words recorded in chapter 1, verse 2. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had the privilege of baptizing the Messiah. He had the privilege of laying his hand on the head of Jesus Christ. Participating in Jesus' identification with sinners. When Jesus received this baptism of repentance. Even though John had previously said he was unworthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. 
John is the one of whom Jesus says in verse 11 that there is none greater among those born of women. There's no one greater than John. John is at the top of the heap. There is no other human being of ordinary generation greater than him in the history of salvation. This is what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is saying about John the Baptist. Now with Jesus' words from verse 5 still hanging in the air, Jesus' words of proof that he is the Messiah still hanging in the air, Jesus tells the crowds that if they are proof enough for John the Baptist, then they are surely proof enough for these people, for the crowds who are following Jesus around. Rather than rebuking or correcting John for his question, Jesus assures John. He assures the crowds around the disciples of John that he is the one for whom John has been waiting. He is the one for whom John has been preparing the way. Let's turn now and look at verses 11 to 15. The least is greater than a prophet. You can see in these verses that Jesus has, has firmly established John the Baptist's place as first among the prophets. And as he reiterates in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now this is a remarkable statement. We've looked at it, we've seen it. It is indeed remarkable. But then Jesus follows it up with an even more remarkable statement. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he and we're going to unpack that statement, but, but just think about it for a moment. Jesus has spent all this time building up John the Baptist. And now he says the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. As Jim Boyce asks, how can the least gifted, significant, the least prominent, the least outspoken of today's believers be greater than this greatest of the Old Testament figures, and therefore greater also than all the others? And then he gives this answer, because they can point to Jesus and witness his, to his work more clearly than even John could. Those who are in the kingdom of God, rather than in the vanguard of the kingdom as John the Baptist was, those who are in the kingdom of God have the ability to proclaim the specifics of the gospel in a way that John the Baptist, nor uh, Isaiah, nor Jeremiah, nor any of the Old Testament prophets could do. This is the privilege that we have as members of the kingdom of heaven. You and I can clearly proclaim the gospel. We're no longer speaking in types and shadows. We're speaking out of the clear light of God's revelation. You see, John still lived in a time in which the cross could only be seen in shadow form. It was a shadow that fell across the landscape of Old Testament history. And it was not understood exactly what it meant. It was not clear who would suffer on the cross. And that's why John asked the question he asked in last week's passage. What Isaiah and Jeremiah and John uh, could only see in shadows and types, we now see fully illuminated. Christ in His full resurrection glory casts His light upon the cross of Christ. And He shows us exactly what Jesus did. And because we can see His cross in its fullness, because we can see it clearly, because we know why Jesus came and why He had to die on the cross, what it meant for Him to die in your place and my place, because we know this, we can proclaim it with clarity. We can proclaim the gospel in its fullness. 
We can indeed speak more clearly about the gospel of Jesus Christ than anyone who preceded Jesus. But we also have the privilege of having the completed canon of Scripture. You have your Bibles. Most of you are sitting here with a copy of the Bible. A thing the likes of which the majority of the church, the vast history of the church, has not known. You have it in its fullness. You have 66 books, not 39. You understand the Old Testament in light of the New. You have the ability to see Christ on every page of Scripture. This is not something that the Old Testament saints had. You see, John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, even the the apostles themselves, did not have what you have in your hands right now. They did not have the fullness of God's revelation. But even more, if these two things weren't enough, even more, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who came upon the church at Pentecost and dwells in the heart of each believer in Christ. And it is the Spirit who convicts us of our sin, who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit gives us communion with Christ. He gives us communion with one another, that fellowship that we enjoy with each other. And it's by the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to cry out to our Father in heaven in prayer. Because we have the fullness of God's Word, and we enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in the fullness of His revelation. This is a great privilege. With the eyes of, the fa- of faith that we've been given by God's Spirit, we truly can see Jesus. And as a result, we can give witness to Christ Jesus with more clarity than any of the Old Testament prophets were ever able to do. But even though the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, Jesus continues to press John's uniqueness in verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now you may notice some of you have a footnote in your Bibles. Maybe most of you have a footnote in your Bibles at this verse with an alternate translation. Something along the lines of the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently. And the reason for this is that the word in the original Greek can mean either thing. It can be translated in either way. And so it's the context around this word which helps us to understand how it should be translated. But the problem is the context uh, can cause us to translate it either way. And so we can see from the context, Jesus has just been talking about the persecution of the church in chapter 10. And so we can see that the church, the, the coming of the kingdom, has suffered violence. But you can also see, as Jesus comes in with power, as he comes in like the strong man who, who binds the strong man, uh, which we read about in Luke chapter 11. Jesus comes in with power and he binds him and he plunders his house. Jesus casts out demons with power. He has the ability to draw people out of the grave. That there is a violence, there is a, there is a power which comes. It's been translated in other versions as, as forcefully advancing. This kingdom comes with forceful advancing. And perhaps Jesus intended for this to be ambiguous. Perhaps he meant for it to, to be translated in either manner. Because this is exactly what is happening with the church. The kingdom of God, the church does come with power. But it also suffers the power under the power of others. This has been happening 
Since John the Baptist began his ministry, and Jesus continues on in verses 13 and 14, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John is the end of the Old Testament prophet era. But John also marks the beginning of the New Testament era. Jesus says that John is the Elijah who is to come. And he's referring here to Malachi 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John is Elijah. Not literally. But if you look at John, if you read the description of John, and you read the description of Elijah, you notice that that the identity, the comparison is real. The description is true. He is the forerunner of Jesus. And if Jesus is the Messiah, John is certainly Elijah who is to come. And then Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you believe that John the Baptist was the Elijah prophesied in Malachi, then you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's as simple as that. If you have the ears to hear what I am saying, Jesus says, then you will believe that I am the one of whom it is prophesied. John was the greatest of all the prophets. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And yet you and I are greater than he. We are more privileged than John because we live on this side of the cross simply for that fact. Nothing that you've done, nothing that I've done, simply because we live now in the full light of the gospel. In the pages of Scripture, we have Jesus fully revealed. We have His Spirit illuminating our hearts to have a greater understanding of God's Word. But with this privilege, with the privilege that God grants us, we have a great responsibility. It is required of you and it's required of me that we speak these words, that we clearly proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. We clearly proclaim what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. And what He has done for sinners we find in verses 16 to 19. A friend of the least. In these verses, Jesus changes tack. He's been commending John the Baptist to the crowd. He's been talking about what a great prophet he is, and now he begins to make an assessment of the crowd itself. Of the generation to which the crowd belongs. And he says in verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? Now this was a generation to which all previous generations looked forward to. And all subsequent generations have looked back upon. This is the generation which witnessed Jesus Christ with their own eyes and heard His voice with their own ears. And so Jesus continues, It is like children sitting at the marketplaces and calling their playmates, calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus here is painting a picture of a very fickle generation. A generation who, as one commentator has put it, is committed to refusing the truth. They refuse the truth of what John the Baptist was saying. They refuse the truth of what Jesus is saying. And so they call out, like children, to John the Baptist, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. They wanted to have a wedding, but John was dressed up in sackcloth and ashes. He was eating honey and locusts. He refused to, to party with them. He was only interested in fasting. But the same generation calls out to Jesus. We sang a dirge. 
and you did not mourn. Now they're talking about a funeral. They talked about a wedding with John. They're talking about a funeral with Jesus, and they're complaining because he's acting like he was at a wedding. They wanted to set these two great figures, they wanted to set these two men against one another. And in doing so, they could deny what Scripture said. But John came to precede Jesus as the forerunner. They wanted to say, look, Jesus, John fasts, but Jesus eats and drinks like a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John preached about coming judgment and the need for sinners everywhere to repent. Jesus is the bridegroom. And as he told John's disciples back in chapter 9, verse 15, and while he is there, the wedding guests will feast. That's what he says. When he's taken away, his disciples, these wedding guests, will mourn. So the generation to which Jesus speaks, they want to point out this contradiction. They want to point out some form of hypocrisy between these two. They want to say that that John preaching repentance of sin and Jesus coming and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, it just doesn't fit together. What they failed to realize, what they failed to understand, is that with, without Jesus willingly making Himself a friend of sinners, without Him willingly making Himself a friend of tax collectors, there is no repentance of sins. There is no hope. You cannot turn if Jesus did not come to die in the place of sinners. Rather than mocking Jesus for His friendship with sinners, they need to rejoice that He is there with them. This is exactly what the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing. He accused them of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and to which we say, Amen. Thank God that He is a friend of sinners. Wisdom is justified by her deeds, as Jesus says in verse 19. And true wisdom recognizes that rather than Jesus' friendship with sinners being an indictment of Jesus, rather than it proving that He can't possibly be the Messiah. It proves that He is a gift to sinners. It is because Jesus is a that you and I have any hope at all. It is because He was willing to become our friend that we are no longer enemies with God. Jesus willingly died uh, died in, in your place on the cross. He took the place of sinners, of enemies, because He desired for you and for me to be friends with Him. So John's message of repentance and Jesus' friendship with sinners, they go hand in hand. They fit together. You can't have one without the other. All that Jesus Christ requires, all that God requires on this side of the cross, as we look back on the cross and the fullness of its glory. As we look back in the, in the light of Jesus' resurrection glory, all that God requires of us is for, for you to repent of your sins and to turn to Christ in faith. To believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah who came to die in your place for your sins. This is all that's required. This is the beauty of the cross. It is on the cross where Jesus became a true friend of sinners. And to that, you and I can say, Amen. Amen. That is our hope. Let us come before the Lord in prayer.
Our gracious God, we thank You that You have made friendship with sinners like we. We thank You, Lord, that You were willing to die in the place of enemies. And in so doing, You have reconciled us to God. Now we pray, O Lord, that as we have been given the fullness of revelation in Christ Jesus, we would turn and speak the truth of the Gospel to others who are perishing without Christ. Help us to know Your Word, we pray. Help us to rely on Your Spirit who lives in our hearts. And help us to go boldly, proclaiming salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.